0: Good morning, First Baptist. You know, it's always better to be humble than to be humbled. And I learned that in a very pointed way. It was between my seventh and eighth grade years growing up, me and my friend Daniel decided that we were going to start lifting weights. So all through the summer, we would get together, we'd go down into Daniel's basement And we'd start squatting and lifting and curling and pressing and doing all these things to where I thought I was getting kind of buff. So my eighth grade year started, and I have this sort of newfound confidence. And I was convinced that I was buff. So I go up to one of the girls in my class. Frankly, a girl that I thought would just be happy that I was talking to her. And I go up to her and I said, uh, I've been lifting weights all summer, can you tell? I really, I really teed myself up good for this. And she gave me an answer that I'm, I'll never forget. She said, uh, Chad, I never noticed you to begin with. How would I know if you've changed? <laughs> I mean, ouch. Ouch. See, it's always better to be humble by choice than it is to kind of be forced into humility. And it turns out that humility has got a lot of good traits. Uh, I I was reading about it just this past weekend, and it's a huge benefit to be humble. And I came across this article about humility. And it was written by a psychologist, and he said that humble people are less anxious. They make excellent leaders. They have higher self-control, better work performance. They make higher grades, they're less prejudiced, and they have better relationships. All of which is very, very good. But then there's this much, much deeper spiritual need for humility for Christians. As a matter of fact, we cannot come to saving faith in Jesus Christ Without this measure of humility. And I love the way Richard Baxter puts this. Richard Baxter was a, a 17th-century Puritan pastor, and this is what he says. He said, "The very design of the gospel is to humiliate us." And the work of grace has begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It is contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not be humble. So this is our subject this morning. How then can we be humble? How can we build humility in our lives? How can we cultivate this sort of spirit of humility and live it out in front of others? And the text that we're going to be looking at this this morning comes again from the book of Judges. The book of Judges this morning will be in chapter 7. We'll look at 7.23 through 8.32, but I'm going to look at a very uh, particular part um, as I read it this morning, verses 22 through 27. So if you would please stand with me for chapter 8, uh, verses 22 through 27 in the book of Judges. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, for you have delivered us from Midian's power. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon continued, I would like to make one request. Each of you give me an earring from the plunder you have taken. The Midianites had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we are happy to give you earrings. So they spread out a garment and each one threw an earring from his plunder onto it. The total weight of the gold earrings the requested the col- excuse me the total weight of the gold earrings he requested came to 1700 gold shekels. This was in addition to the crescent-shaped ornaments, jewelry, purple clothing worn by the Midianite kings and the necklaces on the camels. Gideon used all this to make an ephod which he put in his hometown of Ophrah. All the Israelites prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing this series in the book of Judges. And you may be getting tired of hearing it by now because again and again and again you see this cycle. The judges, they come in. They deliver the people by God's command. The people are okay for a little while. The land has rest. And again, and again, and again, they go back to this idolatrous lifestyle. They're supposed to be in a time of conquest, but they're not. God said, go in and rid the Canaanites from the land. But in some cases, they have lived with the Canaanites. They've worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. They've submitted themselves to the Canaanites. So they're not doing what God has commanded. And repeatedly, they find themselves again ensnared and imprisoned by these Canaanites. So this morning we're going to spend some more time with our friend Gideon. This is actually Gideon part two this morning. And last last week, actually it was the last, couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, we talked about Gideon. He he was terrified and panicked when God initially came to him. And God said, Gideon, there's some things I want you to do. And he was panicked, but then he kind of had this calm assurance. And then it moved into this sort of inflated ego and this hubris. He went from this Ichabod Crane-type guy to a John Wayne in a matter of a few verses, from panicked to prideful. He and 300 men, armed with nothing more than trumpets and jars and a torch, took on about 120,000 Midianites and God turned their swords on each other. So all those Midianites were killed in that one fatal swoop. And we talked about the need to abandon our own pride by giving God the glory in everything and not taking it for ourselves. This morning's message is related to that previous message two weeks ago. And We're going to see three things today. First of all, we'll see again the problem of Gideon's pride. And then we'll hear the harmful consequences of his pride. It It goes deep and and keeps on going. And then finally, we're going to talk about, well, how can we practically build humility in our own lives? How can we build humility in our own lives? So we now come to the text, and we're going to first look at this continued problem for Gideon of pride. And we see in today's verses that Gideon has a deepening problem. Uh, And we see it in the way he's prioritizing things. As a matter of fact, i want to go back a little bit to chapter 7 and start in verse 24. It says there, now Gideon sent messengers throughout the Ephraimite hill country who announced, go down and head off the Midianites. Take control of the fords of the streams all the way to Beth and the Jordan River. When all the Ephraimites had assembled, they took control of the fords all the way to Beth and the Jordan River. They actually go beyond the land of Canaan. It says they captured two Midianite generals, Oreb and Zeb. They executed Oreb on the rock of Oreb and Zeb in the wine press of Zeb. They chased the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was now on the other side of the Jordan River. So he calls up Ephraim to the battle. You may think, well, well, so what? Okay, he can get some more Israelites involved. Well, remember what God had done. See, Gideon had originally summoned up a huge army. And what what did God do? He said, look, I don't want anybody in Israel to think that they're the ones responsible for victory over these Canaanites. So he pared that army down to 300 men. But see, then Gideon runs out and and he starts enlisting more soldiers. So Gideon's got this priority of building the army again instead of trusting God. Remember, he, he and those 300 men, they didn't swing a single sword They blew a trumpet, they shouted, they broke a pot, and these guys turned on themselves. And 120,000 of these guys were killed. It was like, they were like innumerable when they were in that valley. And then there's something worse happening here. These Ephraimites, they start getting testy. Uh, In this next set of verses, it says that they're upset because they didn't get to be part of that original campaign. If you want to call it a campaign... On the Midianites, they weren't paying attention, evidently, because there wasn't much of a campaign, so they confront Gideon, and he's got this very interesting response starting at chapter 8, verse 2. He says to them, now, what have I accomplished compared to you? Just look at that language. What have I accomplished compared to you? Even Ephraim's leftover grapes are better quality than Abiezer's harvest, It was to you that God handed over the Midianite generals, Oreb and Zeb. What did I accomplish to rival that? When he said that, they calmed down. But think about this for just a moment. Because see, Gideon is downplaying what it was God had done, what it was God had done, not Gideon, in vanquishing all of these Midianites, over 100,000 of them. And then what does he do? He elevates all of these Ephraimites for two, two generals. So he's creating this status. Well, these were just the army guys. You guys, see, you got the generals. And that's, that's way more important. So he's creating these levels of glory. And then we see it uh, in chapter 8, verse 5, what he does next. He said, I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. You guys were better than what God did. God just wiped out the whole army. You guys got the generals. Now I'm chasing the kings. So Gideon has these really jacked up priorities. This was supposed to be all about God. He He should have reprimanded those Ephraimites for even suggesting that they need to be part of the campaign. Because God was the one that did it. But that's not what he does. So so far, Gideon has just been about going against his enemies. But then that changes. In verses 4 through 17, we now see him turn on his fellow Israelites. There's two groups that Gideon approaches as he's on this pursuit for the kings, the men of Succoth and the men of Penuel. And he approaches both of them in this pursuit, and he asks them for food. Help us, feed us while we're on this pursuit. Both deny him, and they question him. Well, you haven't got the kings yet," they say. "How do we know you're really on this pursuit of the kings?" So they're challenging him, and they doubt him. So what happens? So Gideon speaks to both of these groups, and then he deals with them. And look at how Gideon deals with these two groups of men: Succoth and Penuel. And we see it in verses 16 and 17. It says he sees the leaders of the city. This is the men of Succoth. Uh, He seized the leaders of the city along with some desert thorns and briars. He then threshed the men of Succoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and executed the city's men. Gideon has turned his power against the Israelites. He's pushing now through these Israelites. His pride has turned him against his fellow man. And now we see him in this vengeful frenzy against the people who had challenged him and doubted him. Now, think about the irony of this for a minute. Let me go back to what we talked about two weeks ago. Do you recall how Gideon responded to God when God came to him? When God said, Gideon, there's some things I want you to do? He questioned God. He doubted God. He tested God time and time and time again. And what did God do? Patiently, he put up with it. Patiently, he let Gideon test him. Patiently, he let Gideon build up his faith and trust in him. But how does Gideon respond when those who he's asking to trust him challenge and doubt and, and test him? He wants to wipe them out he wants to thresh them see he's using all this newfound hubris and confidence he has to start wiping out anybody who gets in his way he's pushing for power then we see in verse 18 the two midianite kings that gideon captured uh, say that gideon and his brothers whom these kings had killed he said they, they looked like sons of kings then gideon calls his son to kill these two midianite kings is a way of bestowing honor his, on his son. It's like a king giving his son a, a, pr- a princely sort of duty, but his son can't do it. So Gideon ends up doing the deed himself. He actually goes and he executes these two kings. And after executing these two kings, he does something very strange. And look at verse 21. It starts out, actually, the kings had not been executed yet. It says, Zeba and Zalmunna, they're they're speaking, said to Gideon, Come on, you strike us. His son was unable to do it. For a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And then look what he does. He took the crescent-shaped ornaments which were on the necks of their camels. See, Gideon's starting to have this this fascination with royalty, the, the glamour. He's taking an interest in it. And he's starting to act more and more like a Canaanite. In the next set of verses, we see the comment from the men of Israel now in verse 22. Look at how they respond. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson. For you have delivered us from Midian's power. Who? Who? Gideon, and what God said was the last thing he wanted to happen, that the Israelites would start taking credit for this, is happening. The guy that blew a trumpet and broke a pot is getting credit for destroying these Midianites. See, Gideon just didn't start out prideful. See, it came with success. It was very sneaky and it, it, it crept its way in. You see, this is how pride works. It's insidious. You may not think yourself prideful, but man, when something good happens, look out. Uh, it's got this sneaky tendency to it. As a matter of fact, I wanted to share something with you from, from Jonathan Edwards. I've, I've mentioned this to you all before. See, Jonathan Edwards talks about, uh, and by the way, Jonathan Edwards, president of an Ivy League college, part of the the first great awakening in the United States, tremendous, tremendous speaker, wonderful man of God. He came up with these seven, what he called the seven sneaky symptoms of undetected pride. And he said in this that, that pride often sneaks its way in our lives like this. First, he said it can come with fault finding. In other words, when you meet with someone, you tend to focus on their faults. You find out what their faults are, and you just focus on that part about You ignore anything good about that person. And then secondly, it can be a harsh uh, spirit, and, an ungentle spirit in dealing with people, treating other people poorly as though this is what they deserve. Or it could be superficiality. This is when you're more concerned about others' perception of you than you are about the sinfulness in your own heart. You, you're more concerned about... How you're putting yourself out there to people. Or it can come in the way of defensiveness. Uh, when we're challenged and we're, and we're rebuked, and we decide that we've got to bring down the fire on that person who just challenged us, who just rebuked us. It can also be presumption before God. Now, this is when we become before God to pray, and we frankly forget who it is that we're praying to the Almighty One, the Creator of the universe. When you see the Milky Way, God did that. But we come to him as though he's not any of those things. Or it can go another way. We come to God without any confidence, without any any sense of forgiveness, as though his grace is not big enough to cover all the sins that we've committed. Or it can be desperation for attention. When we want to do anything, to be the center of attention, to get somebody's attention, because we think we deserve it, and we really want it. And the seventh is maybe one of the most painful, and that is neglecting others, neglecting others. And to that, Jonathan Edwards said this, "'Pride prefers some people over others. "'It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor, "'giving more weight to their words, "'their wants and their needs. There's a thrill that goes through me when people with power acknowledge me. We consciously or unconsciously pass over the weak, the inconvenient, and the unattractive because they don't seem to offer us much. I wish I could say that I'd never lusted over the accolades of someone who I considered to be a powerful person, someone popular. It's painful to read that. This is not the way of Christ. See, the way of Christ is to pay attention to the person who can never return to you what it is that you're giving to them. See, that's what Jesus did for us, and that's what we need to do for others. So in in, in so many subtle ways, it's easy for pride to slip in. It can be so subconscious. We can be unconsciously prideful uh, so often uh, at many times. And then there's the consequences of pride. There's the consequences of pride. And we see this sick perversion of Gideon. Uh, he, he just informed the Israelites that he would not be their king, which is which was good. Uh, but then look at what he does. And we saw it in those verses I read at the very beginning: Gideon wanted those gold earrings. Remember, it was it was in shekels. Those are like hundreds of pounds of, of golden earrings that he was accumulated. And he got those. And then looking again at verses 26 and 27. It said the total weight of those gold earrings he requested came to 1,700 gold shekels. I believe that's a a couple of hundred pounds. Uh, This was in addition to the crescent-shaped ornaments, jewelry, purple clothing worn by the Midianite kings, and the necklaces on the camels. Gideon used all this to make an ephod, which he put in his hometown of Ophrah, all the Israelites prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So we see these consequences. Gideon's got this obsession with the gold and the trappings of royalty, and he fashioned, it as an ephod. Now, this is an ephod. It's this, the breastplate that the high priest wore, and there were 12 stones in it, one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it was reserved for the high priest, he was the only one that was supposed to wear it. And he makes it. He puts it in his hometown. And then you saw it in verse 27. It says that Israel prostituted themselves. They sold themselves to this ephod. They neglected God. The Israelites, see, the problem earlier was they were, they were worshiping the Canaanite gods. The Canaanites were a a trap to them. God said, wipe them out or you're going to worship their gods. But now you see they don't even need the Canaanite gods to tempt them because they're making their own gods. This is so similar to the golden calf that was made uh, there in the book of Exodus. Right after the Israelites had seen God display his power, they get impatient and they make this calf of gold and they start to worship it. It's, it's very similar very similar thing going down there you know, Gideon tore down the altars that had been built to Baal but this happens he fashioned his own God and the Israelites started to worship it there's further consequences to Gideon's pride in verses 28 through 33 we learn that he was called Jerob Baal that means ironically to contend with Baal and he did contend with Baal and he's lost Gideon takes this large harem in those verses. He has 70 sons, and he has a concubine. And by this concubine, he has another son named Abimelech. And you're going to see next week, Abimelech becomes this cancer within Israel. God has is nowhere indicated that he intends Gideon to become king, but he names his son Abimelech, which means son of a king. So because of this ungodly ambition, he sees himself as more important. He takes on this harem. He has Abimelech. And they're prostituting themselves to this God of their own making. These are the consequences of pride. It didn't just affect him. It's now affected all of Israel. You see, pride is deadly. Probably the deadliest consequence to pride is the inability for one to repent of their own sin. And by the way, if you have never come humbly before God and repented of your sin, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. You see, we cannot save ourselves. That's why humility is built into the process of becoming a Christian. Because the only way to become a Christian is to humbly confess, God, I I can't save myself. I need you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. And if you've, never, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm going to ask you if you would do that right now. If you are willing to repent, if you're willing to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're the Son of God. I am trusting in your death and resurrection as payment for my sin. If you call out to God, right, you can do it right there in your seat. Lord, forgive me. Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you. To save me from a sin. I know I'm a sinner. You're a sinner just like the rest of us are sinners. And humility is built into repentance. Hell will be full of prideful people. You see, there's a reason God hates pride more than any other sin. Because it is the root of all sins. It's when we want to do it our way and we don't want to do it God's way. St. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, he put it this way. He said, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. That's why there's so many consequences when it comes to Pride. It's deadly, and I'm going to put a quote up here by Tim Keller as well. He said, Pride makes us foolish because we fail to learn from our mistakes. We justify ourselves and refuse to listen to criticism. I was so moved this past week. Uh, An elder came to apologize to me for something that he'd said. We had a retreat um, last weekend, and I was very moved by this elder. I frankly hadn't remembered what it was that he'd he'd said. When he brought it up, I, I recalled it. But see, that had been bugging him. Pride gives you the ability, I'm sorry, humility gives you the ability to say that you're sorry. You can apologize. You don't do everything right. You've got a good estimation of yourself. So then how can we cultivate and build this sense of humility in our lives? How can we cultivate? I want to go through five just very practical ways to do this. First of all, by confession, Confession, coming before God and saying, Lord, I am a prideful man. I'm telling you all right now, Chad Cowan is a prideful man. It was, you know, I preached to myself before I come to you all. And this was tough. And I realized how much peace and joy I've been missing out on because of my own pride. So we start out by confessing it. There's an actor by the name of Denzel Washington He said, you may have heard of him. Kind of a big deal. But he talked about when he was starting to become a big star and things, he was talking to his mother. And uh, he he said he was talking to his mom, and he said, Mom, did you think this was going to happen? That I'd be so big, and I'll be able to take care of everybody, and I can do this, and I can do that. And he said his mother looked at him and said, Oh, you did it all by yourself. (laughs) She said, I'll tell you what you can do by yourself go outside and get a mop and a bucket and clean these windows. She said, you can do that all by yourself, superstar. Then she went on. She said, boy, stop it right there, stop it right there, stop it right there. She said, if you only knew how many people have been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer talks that she gave. And he said, how many times she splashed me with holy water to save my sorry behind. So, first of all, confess. Uh, secondly, uh, consider others better than yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Our tendency is to want to climb to the top. We want to crawl over other people. I'll never forget whenever Emmett Smith, it was the 1994 Super Bowl, and he played against the Buffalo Bills. And Thurman Thompson fumbled three times in that game. And he's sitting on the bench. He's got his hands uh, covering his face. He knew he played a big role in losing that game. Emmett Smith was voted MVP. So he comes to Thurman Thompson with his goddaughter in his hand and introduces Thurman Thompson to his goddaughter by saying, Here's the greatest running back in the NFL. That's considering others better than yourself. Third, cut out defensiveness. Cut out defens- defensiveness. We tend to want to vindicate ourselves when someone challenges us, when they, when they challenge something that we did. Uh, We want to defend ourselves. Well, two things with that. First of all, maybe you should stop and listen to why you're being confronted on that. And then secondly, our actions tend to speak for themselves. So if you start running your mouth or defending yourself, chances are that thing is going to speak for itself. That's not to say that sometimes we need to defend ourselves. Uh, If someone tells a lie about us, but for the most part, we need to cut out defensiveness. Uh, fourth, criticize yourself more than others. Criticize yourself more than others. There was a, an archbishop named Fenelon uh, in the 17th century, and he spoke to this. And he said, Can we, with justice, feel contempt? Contempt is just when you look down on somebody. Feel contempt for others and dwell on their faults when we are full of them ourselves. Our strong feelings about the faults of others is itself a great fault. Do you ever examine yourself? Maybe the way you're examining somebody else. You should be harsher on yourself than you are on someone else. And then finally, customizing humility daily. Customizing humility daily. That is to say, have a daily custom of being humble. Humble. And I love what Andrew Murray said about this. He said, The insignificances of daily life are the tests of eternity because they prove what spirit really possesses us. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. To know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in the common course of daily life. Do you beat the dashboard when someone cuts you off? Because you deserve better. How do you respond in disagreements with your spouse? Are you willing to let her or him have the last word? See, it's these little decisions we make on a daily basis that will oftentimes determine whether or not we are a humble person. So putting all those five together, be humble by confessing pride, considering others better than yourself, cutting out defensiveness, criticizing yourself more than others, and finally, customizing humility Daily, having a daily custom of being humble. In closing, I want to share with you a story uh, about Abraham Lincoln. In uh, this one, this it's a pretty famous story. Uh, he and his Secretary of State, a man by the name of Seward, were meeting with uh, General George McClellan. He was the head of the, the Union armies. And they go to meet with him, and McClellan decides that he's not even going to talk to him as a matter of fact he leaves them in the parlor and decides he's going to go take a nap for hours so the president of the united states is sitting there in his house waiting and waiting and waiting and he never sees this guy but when he gets back to the white house his aide john hay suggested that he needed to hold mcclellan accountable for what it was he just did you need to rail on him you need to bring the hammer down on him. This is how Lincoln responded to that. He said, now, now, John. If McClellan will only give me victories, I'll gladly hold his horse for him. You see, Lincoln can keep the big picture in mind. and It's my prayer that you and I on a daily basis can keep the big picture in mind, that God has won the victories He's the one giving us our identity. We don't need to pridefully fight for it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we're just thankful to be here. We're just thankful that we get to do what we do, that you've given us sight and life and breath. And, Lord, we, th- we thank you We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our model of humility in what you did in coming to earth and dying for us, for showing us the way. And Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, I pray that we would approach you in this act of remembrance with a true spirit of humbleness. And we ask it in your name we pray, amen.